Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 24. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Good morning again, everyone. We are doing a series of messages started last week and for a few weeks more. The Christian on Mission. And we said the context uh, for mission is your work. Michael last week defined for us mission that it is anything, I mean work is that anything that is not rest. And so that is the other part of your life that you live when you're not sleeping or you're not resting. George Barna in his... uh, book on Christian culture, he said that um, the vast majority of Christians will never hear a message in church about their work in their lifetime. That's an amazing statement, is that most Christians who spend most of their life working will never hear what the Bible has to say about their work in their entire life. So we're going to give you a whole series of them, not to make up for all of those people who will never hear it, but just for you. So in the scheme of things, you might ask yourself, or we ask ourselves, does our work really matter? Is it important? Does it really make a difference in the world? Or is it just a job? The question is an important question, does it really matter? But the Bible has a lot to say, not just about your work, but that your work matters. It matters to God, and if it matters to Him, it should matter to us. So this morning, I want to uh, take a look at some of the modern uh, views or modern uh, perspectives on your work, our work, and then look at what the Bible has to say out of this text to Uh, big ideas. So when I say modern view, it's not one view. 
Our culture has many views, and I want to just give you three real quickly that the world, particularly the American culture, has about work. But before I do, I want you to know that these views, they seem to be contradictory. They seem to be a little confusing, and they seem mutually exclusive, these views. And these views are equally held by those who call themselves Christian and those who don't call themselves Christian. Equally. So what are those views? I think, again, there's at least three. Uh, I'll use Mark Twain's. When he described work, he called it a necessary evil. That's where that phrase came from. We modern people say, I work to live. I work so that I can do Fun things that I can live, I can have food, I can have shelter, I can have clothes. Maybe you can identify with Stanley from The Office. He's one of my favorite characters. It's clear he hates meetings because during all his meetings, he's doing crossword puzzles. While all the activity and all the ideas are flying, Stanley is not paying any attention. But he is working, at least from his perspective. And he only smiles in the whole show. You watch them. There's only one time that Stanley smiles in all of the shows. It is when they've decided to downsize the office and he can take early retirement. Which implies that fun is not work. Work is not fun. Retirement is. The other view is the opposite end of that. If one view is I, I, I work to live, the other one is I work, I live to work. It is who I am. Uh, you may be able to identify with Lady Gaga's quote. She said, my whole life is a performance and I have to up the ante every day. Or... Go back a little further to Rocky Balboa, the great theologian from Philadelphia. I'm going to go the distance. I might lose, but I am going all the way. If I make it to the end, I will prove that I am not what? A bum. Or Madonna. Every time I accomplish something, I feel that I am special. But after a while, I feel mediocre and ordinary again. Everything I do is to prove again and again that I am special. You see, what they're grappling for, what they want, is to matter. To be important. For someone to notice and see them and recognize and give them accolade, acknowledgement. You see, God made us that way. It's not an aberration or the result of the fall that we desire to matter. God even said to us, of all of creation, you're the only one in my image. You're my image bearers. Therefore, you're special in all of creation. That desire of yours to matter, for your work to matter, for your life to matter, was put there on purpose. Our problem isn't that we want to matter. Our problem is where we get our mattering from. The problem with the pursuit of mattering in relationship 
to what we do, it can become an all-consuming temptation to define ourselves by what we do. It's why often when someone meets someone, they ask them, what do you do? Because what you do ends up being the definition of who you are in our culture. The third view, and again, it's a little mutually exclusive, is to have a bifurcated life. What I mean by that is the culture has created categories and qualities of work. What I mean by that is that we can divide the work into secular work and sacred work. That is, one is good, but one is better. I mean, it's great that you work in the service industry. But if you work in the religious industry, that's better. Well, there's another bifurcated. There's the Monday through Friday life, which seems to become a Monday through Thursday life. And then there's the weekend life. I am who I am Monday through the work week, and then I'm somebody else on the weekend. We have our work life, and then the last few years of our life, we have our retirement life, and that's different life. You can see these perspectives can be confusing to people when you're saying, what is the purpose of work? What am I supposed to get out of it? What am I giving myself to How do you view your work? I think one of the lost views in the American culture is the biblical view of work. Because it doesn't seem as um, driving as one of these views of I'm living to work, I'm working to live. Or even bifurcated, I have sacred work. You just have secular work. Last week we looked at God made us workers because our God is a worker himself. Today, I want to take that a little bit further and say and explore that what this text means when it says that our work is cursed. It doesn't matter what you do, including the work that I'm doing now is cursed. Well, what do I mean by that? You have to go to verse 17 to get that. Cursed is the ground because of you. He's talking about Adam and Eve, our first parents, who decided after God created this beautiful place for them to live and to work, that they were going to rebel against him, and so I'm going to curse your work. So he says, cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil, work, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, and for dust you are, and dust you will return. Do you all remember uh, Pandora's box? Those of you who uh, did literature and, and you looked at uh, Greek mythology, uh, there's Pandora. And Pandora is given a box by the gods. And, and, and so Pandora is the first woman on earth and she represents all of humankind. So when she gets the box, it's representative. It's, it's a Greek way to explain how all the evil came into the world. And so what comes out of Pandora's box are all the evil things that you and I are plagued with. And so here's some of the things there that come out of the box. A sorrow and disease, vice and violence, 
madness and death. And one thing you don't think comes out of the box or should be in the box. Evil. Work. Work comes out of Pandora's box because Greeks believe that work was a curse on humanity. It's an evil that we have to deal with. That's how Greeks viewed it, and particularly Greek philosophers taught that the highest form of humanity is not to work, to get to a point in your life where you don't have to labor. That's what the Greeks believed, but the Bible has a very different view about our work. It doesn't say that work is a curse. It says that work is cursed. Do you hear the small nuance there? Work is not a curse on humanity, but work is cursed, which is very different. You see, for us to understand that, we have to go back and see that back in chapter 2, where Michael talked about uh, last week, is that the Lord God, this is verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to do what? Uh, to... to, to uh, a suntan to, to uh, a read by the ponds and the waterfalls or to explore. No, no, no. He says he was put in, man and woman were put into the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You see, God didn't create tourists, He created gardeners. You see, we have a God who has a dirty fingernails because God is a worker. He fashioned us out of the dirt and that got his fingernails and then he said okay I'll tell you what I want you to do with this beautiful garden that you're living in I want you to work it I want you to tend to it I want you to care for it and so we are workers as well what changed was not our task but how hard that task would be we went from workers in paradise to workers with thorns and thistles and frustration and brokenness because of human sin, our rebellion that's all recorded for us in the passage above. But that's not what we're looking at. Our human dignity doesn't come from our work. Our human dignity comes from the fact that we are like our God. In this way, we are workers. Every last one of us. It doesn't matter what you do. Whether you get a paycheck at the end of the week. Or you work on commission and so you uh, work really hard and then you get rewarded. Or, or simply because you uh, uh, keep a home and there is no pay other than the benefit that it runs well. And that children grow up in. Don't you see? Human dignity is because we are workers too. Our dignity does not come from our work. It comes from God. Asking our work to deliver what it was never designed to do is part of the curse. Asking our work to give us what work was never designed to give us is why you and I get so disillusioned by our work. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. 
If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. What do I mean? Sometimes we ask work, our work, to give us recognition, to give us accolades, to give us position and power. Because we so desire to be known and seen, we ask our work to give us what it was never designed to do. We ask it to help us be the best at what we are and what we do. And then we become fearful when we realize we're not the best. Or worst, we are the best, and so we're afraid that we're no longer going to be the best. We can become disillusioned when our work does not give us the recognition that we think we deserve. My favorite time, it happened in college and it happened afterwards. In college, my favorite, favorite time as I became an RA is to watch freshmen after their first exams. You know, they studied like they were in high school. They have their first exams and they get their first low grade and they think, how did that happen? It's a shock to them. They're not just shocked that they got a low grade. They're shocked that they got a low grade. That somebody doesn't think highly of them. Well, that happens in your first job too. You remember your first um, uh, review and it wasn't as good as you thought you deserved. They weren't giving you a 10% pay bump and an extra week of vacation and uh, bringing you into the decision-making process of the leaders. Why didn't that happen? Why did it say, you know, you really need to improve in these three areas. You're doing really good in these three areas, but these three areas you really need to grow in. And you're, you go home and you sit there and you, and you don't hear there were three good areas that you were doing well in. All you heard was there's this one area you need to improve. And you thought, they don't appreciate me. And so you become disillusioned. Because we're asking our work to give us something that our work was never designed to give us. We get disillusioned because we ask our work to give us a legacy. We desire that our names last, that somebody remembers us. So I'm going to do a a memory test for you. I want you to raise your hand if you can name all four of your grandparents' names. All four. Higher so people can see that people actually know their grandparents. All right, keep them up. If you can name one of your great-grandparents, keep your hand up. One of your great-grandparents' name. All right? If you can name one of your great-great-grandparents' name, just one of them, keep it up. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Out of this, there's a few back there. Just out of this massive room, here's my point. You wonder, what's the point? Here's the point. Within 100 years, nobody is going to remember your name. Think about it. Your great-grandparents used to live 100 years ago. And if you can't name them, that's what's going to happen to you. Not only is that going to be true, because I didn't do this memory, can you name one thing? that your great-grandparents did. 
Not only is no one going to remember your name, they're not going to remember anything you ever did on this earth. If you're asking your work to give you that sense of remembrance, your own kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and your great-grandkids won't remember you. It was never meant to give you a legacy. That's not what it's designed for. We're disillusioned because we ask our work to give us glory. You've seen the movie. We want glory. The word glory means weight. It means to matter. It means substance. It means importance. And so we ask our work, we're doing something that matters. It gives me importance. It gives me purpose. It gives me something that gives weight to my life and substance. And we're disillusioned when it doesn't. I love this quote. Uh, Bertrand Russell said, If you desire glory... You may envy Napoleon, but Napoleon envied Caesar, and Caesar envied Alexander, and Alexander envied Hercules. Here's the best part of it, who never even existed. John 17 says work was never meant to be your uh, legacy. It was never meant to give you weight, glory. Jesus says The Father has given me glory, and I have given you his glory. If you're a Christian here, if you're a follower of of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have weight and matter and importance and substance because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's where your glory comes from. You're the only beings on this planet that has God in you. One last one is we ask the work to give us satisfaction. Don't we? Just a little. Let me at the end of the day feel satisfied. Let me at the end of the week, work week. Let me at the end of the year, let me feel some satisfaction. We're hardwired for satisfaction. We want to. We, we'll go to McDonald's and want to be satisfied, much less our work. But when we work and ask the work to do what it was never designed to do, it's like plugging in our umbilical cord into something that was never meant to give us life. God says, I'm the only source of life. If you're not plugged into me, then you're going to take that umbilical cord and you're going to plug it into some other source that you think is going to give you life. And in the end, it's going to suck the life out of you. Because it was never designed to give you a sense of living. It was never meant to bring you the satisfaction that you were built to have. So, the natural question is, does our work matter? Yes, your work matters when it is connected to the work of God itself. Just because I said... Work can't be your source of recognition. It can't give you a lasting legacy. It can't give you glory. It can't be a deep source of deep satisfaction. That doesn't mean that work is unimportant or that it doesn't matter. Your work matters because it matters to God. And therefore, it should matter to us. But how does it matter? How it matters is how our work is connected to his work. 
His work is in two ways. One we saw last week in creation. He's created things and then he asked us to enter into that work by not making things out of nothing. We can't do that. Only God can do that. But we can make something out of something. And that's creative. When music is played, it's not inventing new notes that never existed before. It's a rearranging of those notes in which way that it's pleasing for us to hear. When you uh, make a sculpture, it's not like you made it out of nothing. Poof, magic. No, you took a a block and you made something out of that block. On and on. You see, that's one way we do that. But Genesis 3, 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for them, for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Why in the world would God clothe Adam and Eve? He made them naked. They ran around the garden naked. Why all of a sudden is he worried about them getting some clothes? Well, it's because we know from Genesis 2, because they were naked, it also said they weren't just naked, but they were unashamed. That is, they were fully known and it wasn't repulsive. Either what they saw in themselves or what they saw in the other person wasn't shameful. But after the fall, after sin and evil entered the world, then shame came in. So much shame, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do is they hide. They hide from God, they hide from each other, and they hide from themselves. And because of that, one of the remedies of that, if part of it is creation, the way he's restoring, the way he's redeeming, is he's clothing. He's putting on some clothes. So they don't feel their shame. He's covering their shame. Do you see that? Fast forward to the very end of the Bible. There's two chapters about what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Chapter 21 and and 22. And you see the people in heaven and earth gathered together. And it talks about their clothes. It says two things about their clothes. It says, one, their clothes are white, and that's symbolic of righteousness. Not carried, not soiled, not stained with sin. But the other one is it's given to them. It's something that they wear that they didn't buy, that was given to them. And so what you see in Genesis will show up again in Revelation as this idea that you and I need clothes to cover us up. My, I want to make sure I don't go, you've got hours. Um, I do want to say this. My sons and my daughter, I would come in when it's time to, for them to go to bed, and I would tuck them in and cover them up. So I have one son who would not pull the covers up. He would wait until Dad came up there, read a story, and then cover him. And his reason is, Dad, you do it better. Have you ever gotten to the point in your life where you realize that God covers you better than you cover yourself? Have you ever gotten to the point where you recognize that you've been wearing organic clothing that is falling apart and not really covering anything? In the Old Testament, they called that fig leaves, but that's what they wore, and it was inadequate. So God takes some animal skins... And he makes some garments for them to wear. 
because he's picturing the hope in the future of a permanent robe that they'll wear forever that will cover all the shame and sorrow of this life. Also, way back in that garden, verses 22 through 24, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord, God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed the east side of the garden of Eden and cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. I'm trying to picture this in my mind. Can you imagine? I just got kicked out of the garden with my wife. We've got some clothes that were given to us and we can't go back because there's this crazy angel hanging out with a sword that's flaming and says you can't come to the one thing you desperately need, which is life, which is symbolized by that tree. I can't go back that way. Where in the world do you think I would set up camp? Right there. Right there by the garden, by that doorway. Because I want back in. Because God's already told them, I don't want you to eat of this tree and stay in this condition. I need you redeemed before you can eat that piece of fruit of that tree of life. How in the world do we get back to that tree? How does redemption happen? How does restoration come to us? Well, somebody has to go through the sword. Somebody has to allow that sword to tear their flesh and bleed out for our sin so that we can go back in. And his name was Jesus. He was sent down from heaven to enter in that place to be torn by his, in his flesh for us. He died that we might live. He climbed the cross that you and I deserve that we might live. Revelation, by the way, chapter 21 and 22 again, you'll see the tree in the new heavens and the new earth. And we can eat all of it all day long, every day, because we are redeemed. Well, Bruce, what does that have to do with my work? Because we can participate, just like we can participate in creation in our work, we can also participate in redemption in his work. Through our work. We're just kind of calling it this new concept, uh, restorative presence, but what, what does that mean? God saw that brokenness that sin had brought into his creation, and he was determined that that would not be the last word spoken over his creation. He loves creation too much. So he redeemed it. He restored it. And, and so he says, you can participate in that. And so many of us think, well, that means I have to present the guy. I, I had a roommate in college. His first, his first review uh, on the job was, You're, if you are half as good an employee as you are an evangelist, you would be my best employee. Because what he decided to do, he took this idea that I'm part of God's restorative presence and I'm going to share the gospel with everybody even if it means I'm not going to do much work. And his boss didn't think that was so good because that's the thing he hired him for. And we tend to think that's the only way to do restorative presence. That if I'm not sharing the gospel with my boss during my review, then I'm not doing God's work. But there's another way to do restorative presence. And that is, you can look... At this world, your job, your neighborhood, 
our city, and you can affirm what is good. And there are some great things about our city. There's some great things about your job, some great things about your neighborhood. And you can affirm that. And you can tell people, we don't have to be the sourpusses of the world as Christians. We can actually say positive things about this world. But secondly, then we can critique what's broken. Because the world needs to hear the reason why you're frustrated at work is because it was never meant to give you the recognition and legacy you so much want from it. So you can affirm it, you can critique it, but here's the deal. You can look at what's broken and you can try to fix it. Yes, it won't be permanent. Yes, it won't be perfect. But that's restorative work. Let me just give you one example. Uh, I lead Gotham for the past uh, three years. And last year we had this beautiful woman in the group. Her name was, uh, is Maggie. And so she's doing what's called a... Um, a cultural pro- renewal project. And in that project, you're asked to, to do that very thing, affirm, critique, and, uh, and then work toward restoration. And, sh- and she lives in Brooklyn in a very small neighborhood, uh, Maddie. And, and, and in that neighborhood, uh, it's, a, it's not a, a huge neighborhood, but there were a lot of needs. It's a poor neighborhood. And so she noticed that, that a lot of these services were not getting volunteers. And so she decided in, that what she was going to do is she was going to map out all of the service places in her neighborhood. And then she was going to keep, create a website where people who are looking to serve but don't know where to serve uh, so they can volunteer. And so in her neighborhood, she's linked together volunteers who are providing uh, 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 labor to uh, organizations that are trying to serve the needy of her neighborhood. And it was a tremendous uh, act. She saw the brokenness. She affirmed that there's a dignity in people, and therefore they need housing, they need food, they need, uh, uh, they need uh, 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 training for jobs. And so she recognized there were these, she didn't create those organizations, she just wedded them together. And I think that's a beautiful example of what restorative presence is. It also means justice and mercy. It, it means so much more than I'm able to give you. But the whole idea of getting your mind around, I'm not just a consumer in New York City. I'm just not another person here among the 8 million people. I'm here looking at what God is already doing, and I'm already going to join and make a difference. Will you join us at LSQ for the joy of our city to be restorative presence here in the city for the people of our city? And all it really requires you to do is what you're already doing in the places that you're already doing them. But to see with eyes that God has, to affirm what is good, critique what is broken, and seek to restore when you can. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for work you give us. It has a proper place, and sometimes we get so disillusioned because we ask it to do more than it can deliver. But it does have an importance. It does have matter. It does have weight and substance. Help us to see what you're doing in our city, what you're doing in our jobs, what you're doing in our neighborhoods, and to move out into it with great confidence and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.